Would you bow your hearts with me and pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have loved us so much and that you have sent your Son to die for our sins so that through his blood we would be forgiven. I thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness that we have in you, for the salvation that has been given to us as a gift. I praise you for that. I pray that every heart here would walk away from here assured of that, that their sins have been forgiven, that they're trusting Christ and only Christ. I pray for us in this moment as we go to your word. I pray that you would open our minds to behold wonderful things in your word. I pray that you would open these truths as perhaps we've never seen them before because your spirit is at work in our hearts to understand them, to believe them, and most importantly, to live them. I pray for grace for myself to take us through this passage that is familiar to most people. But I pray that you would speak afresh to each heart here so that you would look at us and you would assess our lives and we would be pleasing to you. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. And as I mentioned earlier, I want to preach a message this afternoon entitled, What Makes Jesus Sick? Now, we're in a process of establishing church in this area. And while we are investing our time, we're investing our effort, we've got to keep in mind that we are just tools in the hands of all-powerful God, and church is His idea. We don't come up with church. We don't come up with the way we ought to do church. We have one pastor. There's only one senior pastor in the church, and his name is Jesus Christ, right? You read First Peter chapter 5, and First Peter chapter 5, Peter says that there is one chief shepherd. All the other pastors in the church, they're mere under-shepherds who carry out the will of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Now, in this early stages of the church as we are, it is important for us to remember that what we're doing here ought to be done according to what Jesus wants for the church. Because Jesus determines what church should be, and Jesus determines what church should do. On the one hand, we should not redefine the church and make it more acceptable to people so that a bunch of people would flock here. On the other hand, we ought not to build barriers that Jesus did not put so that we don't become holier than thou. We can't do that because church is His idea. What we ought to do is we ought to search the scriptures to see Jesus' design for the church. And then we ought to try to live up to that standard by the power of the Spirit. Once in a while we have to step back and we need to assess ourselves and we need to assess the church or what we're doing in the church to see if we're living up to that standard. I mean, of all the assessments you will do in this life, this one is perhaps the most important one. Your spiritual assessment of how you're doing spiritually and how the church you are in doing spiritually, those are perhaps the most important assessments that you will ever make. Because you see, you can succeed in school, you can succeed in business, you can succeed in your family life, you can succeed in every sphere, if you will. But if you fail in this one, you're going to be an epic failure. In fact, you can argue that You cannot succeed in all those other areas unless you succeed in this one here. You see, what will count on the last day is not how successful you were. It's not how much money you had in your bank account. It's not how many houses you were able to acquire. It's not what position you held, but what your your relationship with God was like. That's the only thing that will matter on that day when you stand before God. 
If you fail your financial assessment, for example, there might be some consequences, or maybe not. And even if there are some consequences, then they're merely temporal. But if you fail this assessment here, the consequences are eternal. Now, because church is Jesus' idea, because Jesus is the head of the church, He is the one who makes the ultimate assessment of your life. If you want to please anybody, it's supposed to be Him. When we come to the book of Revelation, you come to first couple chapters, and you see this picture of Jesus, or John sees this picture of Jesus, glorified Jesus, walking among the seven golden lampstands, which represent the churches, and Jesus is actively assessing the churches. He has perfect knowledge of every single person in the church. He has perfect knowledge of the situation. And listen, his verdict is the only one that matters. Jesus' verdict is the only one that matters. You see, it doesn't matter what your community thinks of you if Jesus is not pleased with you. And it doesn't matter what your community thinks of you if Jesus is pleased with you. You see, ultimately, you are walking before the audience of one, whether individually or as a church, and you're walking before Jesus Christ Himself. Ultimately, His assessment of you and His assessment of us as a church is the only one that matters. In the meantime, before we get to that final day when He gives His assessment of us, we ought to study the Word to see how we can live up to the standard that He has prescribed to us so that He would be pleased with us. Now, I want to take you to this familiar passage this afternoon. And in this passage, we'll find a group of people that made an assessment of themselves. The problem was that they couldn't have been more wrong. As we study Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, I want us on two levels, individually and as a church, to assess ourselves and to see where we are standing before the Lord. A few background words before we actually get to our text. John wrote this book, the book of Revelation, the last book that was written about 95 A.D., John wrote this book according to Revelation chapter 1 verse 9. He's on the island of Patmos where he was sentenced because he was faithful to the preaching of the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. We don't know how long John was there, but on one of the Sundays, Jesus himself, glorified Jesus, appears to John and he has a message. He has message, in this case, for seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are seven local churches in Asia Minor. We can say that in some ways, these seven churches, they represent all the local churches throughout the history of the church. All of the letters are addressed to the pastor of the church, or if you read, it says to the angel of the church, and the word angel, angelos, it can be translated as a messenger or as an angel. Now, six of the seven churches, they receive some kind of commendation from the Lord. He says these things are really good. All except the one that we're going to look at, the church in Laodicea. Only two of the seven churches do not get any condemnation from the Lord. The church in Smyrna, a persecuted church, and the church in Philadelphia. Now, all the letters are fascinating, and uh, it would be worth studying all of them. But for this afternoon, we're going to focus on one, a letter to the church in Laodicea. Of all the seven churches, this is perhaps the most familiar one to us all. No doubt as we read this text, you will hear the verses that you heard before or probably maybe even memorized before or shared them with somebody before. 
At the same time, I think we can say that this is one of the letters that is most misinterpreted and misapplied in the Bible. People take things from this letter, they take them from the context in which they are written, and they apply them to different situations, and you'll see that as we go along. Now, I want us to work through this text, and I want us to consider what these words meant to the people who were sitting in the Laodicea Bible Church 2,000 years ago. If you were sitting in that pew, and you heard this letter read for the first time, what would you be thinking? And then, once we understand that, we'll consider how this applies to us. I want to arrange our thoughts under four headings, just to make it simple. First, we're going to look at the correspondent, the one who's given this letter. Second, we're going to look at the condition, because Jesus describes the condition of the church in Laodicea. Third, we're going to look at the cure that Jesus provides for their condition. And then finally, Jesus concludes what they call. So the correspondent, the condition, the cure, and the call. Join me as I read Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. It says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I have to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Before we go to our first point, I want to give you a brief background on the city of Laodicea and the church that was in that city. The city of Laodicea was located about 100 miles east of Ephesus, and it stood as one of the triads of city in Lycus Valley, the city of Colossae and the city of Hierapolis. The city of Colossae was about 11 miles east of Laodicea, and the city of Hierapolis, which will become important a little bit later on, it just stood six miles north of Laodicea. The location of the city was very important because it stood at the crossroads of at least two main roads. The east to west road, it led to Ephesus, which brought a lot of traffic. And if you're talking about north-south, you have a route that goes to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, because of the location of the city, the city became extremely wealthy. It was a center of a, it was a banking center of the world or of that region at that time because it stood at the crossroads of those two roads. Besides that, the city was famous for the black wool industry. The city was famous for that, and they produced clothes that were sold all throughout the region. It was very expensive. It was made into clothes. It was woven into carpets, and it was sold all throughout the region. The city also prided itself because of this famous school of medicine that they had. And the physicians there, they came up with eye salve that they sold all throughout the region to help people with their eyesight. 
Its banking, its wool, and its medicine industry made the city extremely wealthy. Now, they were so wealthy that in AD 60, when there was a huge earthquake and the city was completely destroyed, Rome wanted to send some finances to help them rebuild the city. And it says, thank you, but no thank you. We got it ourselves. Did it all by themselves. They were proud of their wealth. They were proud of their position. Now, when it comes to the church in Laodicea, not much is known about them. In the New Testament, the church is, or at least the name Laodicea, is mentioned six times. Four times we read of them in the book of Colossians, because they were sister churches. They were just 11 miles apart. And twice it is mentioned here in the book of Revelation. We do not know who started this church. We do know that it wasn't Paul. In fact, Paul tells us that he never visited there. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. So Paul never visited them. Paul never been there. He never been to Colossae either. Now, we do know that this church, they had access to what Paul wrote. Because in the same letter to Colossians, Paul says this, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the churches of Laodiceans. And you, for my part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. This most likely is a reference to the Ephesian letter, which later became known as Ephesian letter, letter, but it was passed all throughout the region. And Paul is saying, my letter is coming from Laodicea. When you guys read the letter to Colossians, pass this on so that the Laodiceans can read it as well. Now that's a little background on the church and on the city. Let's begin with the first point here, the correspondent. Look at verse 13. He says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. Apostle John here is recording the words of Jesus himself. And Jesus begins this letter by identifying himself with three titles. The first title we read here, the Amen. In fact, if you read all the letters, they all begin in the same way. Jesus gives some kind of identification of himself that is relevant to a particular situation or to what's going on in the city that he's addressing or in the church that he's addressing. When Jesus speaks to this church, he begins with the Amen. A unique title of Jesus, mentioned only here in the New Testament. Amen is a transliteration of both Greek and English word, amen, it's a Hebrew word. And Greek and English word is just a transliteration of that word. And it means something that is true, something that is trustworthy, something that is certain, and something that is sure. You know the famous saying of Jesus you read in the gospel, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. He's literally saying, amen, amen. That's what he's saying. Truly, truly, it is certain, it is true, and it is trustworthy. No, a man has nothing to do with gender. The reason I say that, because you probably know or you heard that, uh, just a couple months ago, there was a guy in Congress who was praying, and then he concluded his prayer by saying, Amen, and a woman. has nothing to do with gender. Amen means certain. That's why when when you're praying, and you're saying amen at the end of prayer, what are you saying? You're saying, yes, I agree with what that person said. Let it be so. That's what amen means. Now, when Jesus says here, Jesus takes the title, he applies it to himself, and he says, the amen. 
the true one, the certain one, the trustworthy one. He's the one who's speaking to you. He is the truth. And he's going to address you now. His assessment is going to be certain, and you better take it seriously. Not only is he the amen, notice the second title he gives to himself, the faithful and true witness. Now with this phrase, he makes the amen even more specific. This is not the first time we read of Jesus in the book of Revelation as faithful and true. Go back to Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, it says that this whole book, the whole book of Revelation, is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The faithful and true. Now this title stands in contrast to who Laodiceans were. Unfaithful and untrue. And Jesus says, I'm going to address you. I'm going to give you my testimony. I'm going to give you my assessment. And this assessment is going to come from one who is faithful and true. And therefore, you better take it seriously. The third description of Jesus in this text, he says, the beginning of the creation of God. Again, we might think like, hey, well, what's the point of this? Why is it here? But you got to remember that in the context in which it was written, or to the church to whom it was written, it, played a, it had a significance. Now when you read this phrase, the beginning of the creation of God. False teachings, Jehovah false witnesses, they love this text. They love this text because they say, oh, look at that. It says that Jesus is the beginning of the creation of God. So Jesus was created by God, and then Jesus created everything else. Now this false teaching that is alive and well today was just as alive and just as well back in the first, first century. I mentioned that the church in Colossae and the church in Laodicea, they were sister churches. They were in the same region, dealing with same issues, dealing with same problems. And you can say that the issues that are addressed in the letter to church in Colossae are the similar or the same issues that people had to deal in church in Laodicea. That's why when Paul writes to them, he says, listen, have this red letter read among them. When you take this phrase, you can actually translate it as the source of the creation of God, the author of all that exists. Now, this is not the first time. Jesus already addressed the church in Laodicea 35 years earlier in the letter of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, notice how connected this is. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Right? He's before all things, and in Him things all, and in Him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church, and He is the firstborn. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. This Jesus Christ who's going to address this church is the one who created all things. He's the one who spoke all things into existence. And now this Jesus Christ is going to address this church. That's not surprising that when the church goes astray, the teaching about the person of Christ is usually the first things to go. Because you see, if you hold on to who Christ is, then you will hold on to the true gospel. Because you understand the identity and the personhood of Christ. But if you deny who Christ is, as these people seem to have done, it's no surprise that they go astray. So now God Himself 
the source of all creation, who is the truth, who is faithful witness to the truth. He is about to give his assessment of the condition of the church in Laodicea. So let's consider, secondly, the condition. Look at verse 15. I know your deeds. Jesus begins his assessment, and he begins by telling the Laodiceans that I know your deeds. Listen, I have perfect knowledge of you. This is not hearsay. This is not just my opinion, what I think. No, he is the faithful and true witness. What I'm going to tell you is what reality is. Now, you might think the reality is different, but I am the faithful and true witness, and I know your deeds. Now, when he says, I know your deeds, he's not just saying, hey, I know what you do. He's saying, I know you fully. Why? Because your deeds, they're outflow of your heart. And what Jesus is going to say, listen, I know you totally. I know you on the inside, and I know you on the outside. I know your deeds. Now, what does he know about their deeds? He says that you are neither cold nor hot. Now, this statement here defines their deeds. He says, I know you, and I know you because you are neither cold nor hot. Now, what do most people do with this phrase when they come to this passage? They say something like this. Well, you see, I mean, cold means that you completely don't care about God. You live in the world, you don't care about God, you don't go to church, you're completely cold. Hot means that you're on fire for the Lord. You're there every Bible study, you're there every prayer meeting, you're there in your Bible, and you're just hot on fire. Now, lukewarm, it's like somewhere in the middle. You're not there and you're not here. You're kind of a carnal Christian. Now, is that what this text is actually saying? Now, you might find support for those ideas, perhaps somewhere else in the Bible, but not in here. The question for us is this. If you were sitting in the pew on that first Sunday when this letter read for the first time in the Laodicea Bible Church, and you read the statement that you are neither hot nor cold, What would you be thinking? I'm glad you asked. I mentioned that the city in Laodicea, they were extremely wealthy. I mean, everything seemed to go well for them, except they had one problem. And the problem was that they did not have a water supply in the city. The water had to be brought in to the city. I mentioned Hierapolis, which was six miles to the north. And Hierapolis was known for their hot mineral springs. Now you take the water from Hierapolis, you bring it through six miles of aqueduct, and you bring it to the city of Laodicea, and it's not so hot anymore. Colossae, 11 miles to the east, had cold springs. You take their water, you pump it through 11 miles of aqueduct, and you bring it to the city, and it's not so cold anymore. So when you're sitting there for the first time, and you know that in your city, this is your problem, and Jesus says to you, listen, you are neither hot nor cold. They know exactly what Jesus is talking about. You see, hot water, hot water from a mineral spring has its medicinal value, and there's value in that. Cold water obviously is refreshing. Think about a hot day, get a glass of cold water. It is refreshing to you. But what about August? It's 110 outside. I'm going to give you a glass of warm mineral water. What's going to happen? You're going to vomit it out. That's the idea here. 
That's the idea here. The idea is not that, hey, I wish that you were a believer on fire, or you were complete unbeliever, complete pagan here. I'd like that better than you just being somewhere in the middle. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. Now, if you think about just by way of application to the church, church is a place of broken people. Notice this rebuke goes not necessarily to individuals in the church. It goes to the whole church because Jesus is addressing the church. Yes, church is made up of individuals in the local body. But Jesus here is addressing the church. Now, when you think about a church, when you think about a local church, church is a place for broken people. You take any of us and all of us in one way or another are marred by sin. Now, when you get saved, God brings you into a local body where you're being ministered to with the Word, where other believers with their gifts, they're ministering to you, and slowly but surely, God is restoring you into the image of Christ. In a way, church is a place of healing, where your past is dealt with, where in the present, present you're growing, and when you're taught about the future that is awaiting you. On the other hand, church is, ought to be places where your soul is refreshed. Because if you come to church and every time you're just barbarded with problems and it's just so messed up and you go home discouraged, that's not the point. You come together with beliefs. Why? For encouragement. So come together and encourage one another. That's the intent of the church. So that we would help each other grow, help each other mature, help each other heal from the problems that we have, and we would encourage one another. Now Jesus looks at the church in Laodicea and He says, You are neither. Jesus looked at this church And he says, you are as nasty as a glass of warm mineral water on a hot summer day. MacArthur says, some churches made the Lord weep. Others make him angry. The Laodicean church made him sick. That's the idea. That's why the title of the sermon is, What Makes Jesus Sick? Now in verse 16, notice it is is a graphic image here. It's a graphic, he says, Because you are vomit-inducing church, I am about to vomit you out. Now this is addressed to a church. This was a church where the name of Christ was one's name. If you were to visit them, they probably still had a plaque of Laodicea Bible Church. Welcome. Probably did that. But they long cease to function as a church. Now in verse 17, if you look at verse 17, Jesus summarizes the condition of this church in their own words. Notice it says, because you say. Now perhaps, and most likely, they wouldn't just parade that and walk around proclaiming that. But Jesus knows their heart. Jesus knows what they're thinking. And Jesus summarizes their thoughts or even their words with this. He says, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Notice the spirit of the city has crept into the church. The city was wealthy. The city was self-sufficient. The city was proud. And the city was arrogant. And he's addressing this church. And he says, you are just like your city. You are wealthy. You are self-sufficient. You are proud. And you're arrogant. I mean, you read the statement. Can you just see the pride here? Lack of humility. I don't need anyone. I don't need God. Because I got everything taken care of. You know, there's a song that we sing. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. 
Laodiceans had a different version. Don't need you, I don't need you. Every hour, I don't need you. That's the one. I have need of nothing. But notice the problem is that their assessment of themselves was not based in reality. Jesus says, and you do not know. You do not know how many people today have made an assessment of themselves that is actually false. They think they are something when they're not. And here's Jesus, the one who knows all things. He's like, let me actually tell you what you are. Now, in describing their spiritual state, he says, let me tell you what you actually are. And he gives five adjectives that describe what they truly are. First of all, he says, you do not know that you are wretched. Wretched. Listen, apart from the grace of God, you are pathetic. That's reality. This word is used only twice in the New Testament. The only other time it is used is in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, where Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Now, Paul realized his condition. He says, I am a wretched man. I do things that I don't want to do, and I don't do things that I want to do. What a wretched man that I am. He was well aware of his condition. Laodiceans weren't. And Jesus reminds them, he says, let me tell you, you are wretched. Not only are you wretched, he says, you are miserable. Miserable. This word can be translated pitiable. The only other use of it is in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, where Paul says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. That's the word. Listen, your condition is not to be admired, but is to be pitied. If you actually saw someone in this condition, you wouldn't pat them on the back, but he says you would weep over them. That's what Jesus is saying. You look in the mirror and you look, oh wow, we're so amazing. People in town look at this church and like, wow, look at that. And Jesus says, I weep when I look over you because you are miserable. Number three, you're poor. You're poor. I mean, of all the things, these people didn't think they were poor. I mean, didn't they just declare that we are rich and we have need of nothing? But in reality, Jesus says, I look at you. And your true condition that you are a poor beggar begging for food. This is who you are. You're poor. All these people had much. But in God's eyes, he says, you're poor. Not only are you poor, number four, he says, you're blind. You're blind. I said that the pride of the city was this medical school that has created this eye salve to help people with their eyesight. And he says, listen, you're selling eye medication to other people, but you yourself are blind. What is the irony here? Everything that these people took pride in, Jesus destroys one by one. Their wealth, their abilities, their resources. He says, you are wretched, you are miserable, you are poor, you are blind. And by the way, you're naked. Oh, again, you take pride in your wool industry. You take pride in your expensive clothes that you're selling all over the region. You think that you look so fabulous and you're so fashionable. Well, let me tell you something. You are Naked. Naked. Because I look at you and this is what you are. And with these indictments, Jesus destroys everything that these people have trusted in. Now you read this and you ask yourself a question. How 
can you be so wrong? I mean, how can you think that, listen, I am like right there, I'm at the top. I am rich, I have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And in reality, you're poor, and you're blind, and naked. Well, the reality is that it is possible. Because Laodiceans were self-deceived. I mean, the lesson is here that unless God opens your eyes to see your own true condition, you won't see it. Having looked at Jesus' assessment, let's go back and try to define that term, because you are lukewarm. So what does it mean to be lukewarm? Yes, Jesus used an illustration of the water supply in the city. But when we apply that to a spiritual condition, and we can say this is what it means to be lukewarm, notice lukewarm does not mean that you lack passion for Jesus. It doesn't mean that. Lukewarm does not mean that you don't attend prayer meetings or Bible studies or go to, don't go to church regularly. That's not what lukewarm means. What is lukewarm? Lukewarm is proud, self-reliant, self-sufficient arrogance of a spiritually wretched, miserable, poor, and blind individuals. That's what lukewarm is. That's what Jesus is saying here. Listen, instead of trusting and looking to the one who can supply all these things to you, you look to yourself and you are arrogant in your pride. You think that you're pretty good on your own. You don't need Jesus. You don't need anybody's help because you are doing well. Let's ask another question. Were these people saved? Because notice this letter is addressed to who? It is addressed to a church. But we know that you could be a church and you can be a dead church. You're in chapter 3. Look at verse 1. He's talking to another church. In chapter 3, verse 1, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Talking to a dead church. Now, having looked at the description of this church that we just looked through, there's no way you can argue that these people are believers. There's just no way. You can't tell me that someone who is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked is a description of a believer. You're going to get to verse 18. And in verse 18, Jesus is going to offer to these people something that they don't have. They need to acquire it. They need to buy it, which means they don't have it. These people aren't saved. You get to verse 20, and we'll get there in just a moment. And you will realize that Jesus is standing outside of this church. Jesus is knocking on the door of this church. Now, you can do with a lot of things, do away with a lot of things, and still be a Christian. But Jesus is not one of them. I think if you lost Christ, you lost Christianity. I think it's safe to say that. Now, in this case, when Jesus is addressing this church, He says, I am standing on the, out, on the outside, and I am knocking on your door. But the tragedy was that the Laodiceans thought that they were Christians, and they were on the way to heaven. You see, just thinking that you're a Christian does not necessarily make you one. So let's ask that question. What makes Jesus sick? You put everything together that we just said, and we can say that a self-sufficient, arrogant heart make Jesus sick. That's how you would summarize this. A person who is so arrogant, a person who is so self-sufficient, who relies on his own resources, on his own abilities, on his own strength, while being wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. 
Someone who claims the name of Christ, possibly even attends the church, professes to be a believer, but trusts in himself and trusts in himself, in his actions or in his resources. He says, that person makes me sick. Now, a word of caution here, because I am talking to believers here. You see, very often when we study passages like this, and when we talk like this, and when Jesus talks like this, you can have genuine believers begin to wonder, well, is this a description of me? And maybe, maybe I'm self-deceived. How do I know that that's not me? You see, true biblical preaching, it should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And very often, those who are comfortable in their sin, they would listen to something like this and say, well, of course it's not me. You know, like, I'm not, no, that's not me. And someone who is, you know, worried that, like, maybe I'm lost, maybe I'm self-deceived. And all of a sudden, they take all these warnings and they just beat themselves up and they're like, oh, I don't think I'm saved. So how do you know that this doesn't describe you? Well, let me ask you, do you recognize that apart from Jesus... You are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Do you recognize that? Do you trust in yourself and your resources? Or do you trust in Jesus? You see, if you cry out to the Lord, if you pray to the Lord, if you ask Him to forgive you, if you go to the Lord and you say, Lord, apart from you, apart from your grace, this is what I am, then that's not talking about you. This is talking about someone who actually does not see themselves like that. Someone who doesn't see their sin. Someone who hasn't humbled before the Lord. And to that person, he says, yes, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And you are lukewarm. And you are making me sick. And I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You see, if you continue to trust in the work of Christ and what He has accomplished for you, that is not a description of you. You can have full assurance of your forgiveness. But this is a warning to someone who doesn't do that. This is a warning to someone who sees himself as Laodicea and saw themselves. Having looked at their condition, let's look thirdly at the cure. Because Jesus is going to offer cure to these people. Verse 18 says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I have to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I mean, these verses, I mean, it's a precious verse because, I mean, if it was you or I, we'd probably, probably just like vomit this church out and move on to the next thing. And here is Jesus like, yes, you are making me sick, but I advise you. I advise you. Notice the irony. Church that says we don't need anything. We don't need anybody's advice. We don't need anybody's resources. Jesus says, I advise you. Now, pronouns here are very explicit. I advise you to buy from me what you do not have. Jesus is speaking to this church. I advise you to buy from me. Wait a minute. Didn't Jesus just say that you're poor? How are you going to buy this? How do you buy what Jesus is offering? Listen to the words of Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. How do you buy it? 
He says, you buy it without money and you buy it without cost. The only thing that you need to do is you need to acknowledge that you have nothing. That you need to come and you need to ask. You need to plead for mercy. Now three things Jesus is offering to the church in Laodicea. First of all, He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Again, notice all these allusions that would be familiar to the church and to the city. We're talking about wealth. We're talking about gold here. And you trust in your gold. You trust in your resources that you have. And when he says gold refined by fire, he's saying that when you refine gold by fire, you're talking about purity. You take this and you make parallel to other passages of Scripture. And it talks about when you, say, when you get saved, when you come to the Lord, the Lord gives you faith, the Lord refines you, cleanses you by fire, and He offers you purity. How do you receive that? How do you buy it? You buy it by asking, and you buy it by faith. You believe it's a free gift of faith that He's offering to these people. Not only that, He says, in white garments so that you may clothe yourself, so that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. No doubt these people wore luxurious garments. No doubt they were rich. They were known and they were proud of their wool. And yet Jesus looks at you and says, Listen, what you need is not black wool that is expensive. What you need is white garments to clothe yourself so that you would cover the nakedness. That's what Jesus is offering to them. The idea of salvation, this picture of putting on new clothes, that is a parallel to being saved. For example, Isaiah 61.10 says this, I will rejoice gladly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. For He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. What happens when you get saved? What happens when you get saved? He takes your filthy rags, and He throws them away. And He gives you a white, Close. Wide righteousness of Christ. And this is the picture here. He says, you are so proud of the clothes that you wear. Well, come to me. Buy from me white garments. Because apart from those garments, he says, you are naked and you're shameful. Shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And finally, I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus is offering to those who make eye medication a salve that removes blindness. He says, you're blind. You're spiritually blind. And you need to see. And the only way you will ever see is if you come to me. Notice that Jesus has a cure for every problem they have. You're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I can solve those problems. You don't have clothes, I have clothes to give you. You don't have eyesight, I can fix it. I can give you all of those things if you come to me. Now, you read these five verses that we just read. And someone might suggest that, I mean, Jesus is pretty harsh. I mean, that's not the nicest thing to say to people that, you know, I'm looking at you and you're making me vomit. You're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, poor. You're self-deceived. It's not the nicest thing to say. I mean, Jesus, if you if you really want to reach these people, shouldn't you be a little nicer to them? I mean, maybe more loving? Why such harsh rebuke? Now, as we look at the last point here, 
you will see that this rebuke is actually a demonstration of His love. You look at verse 19. Notice how it starts. Those whom I love. Notice, this does not come from hatred. This does not come from just, hey, I want to just exact my penalty on you. No, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You see, what Jesus thinks, or Jesus thinks in this text, that the most loving thing you can do for these people is to reprove them. And reprove them as severely as he had. Listen, they don't need encouragement. They don't need a pat on the back. They don't need a lecture about self-esteem or self-love. They don't need to be made much of. They need to be rebuked. And it is this rebuke that should wake somebody up. Because you see, if maybe your friend told you this, you'd be like, hi, you don't really know. But here it is. It comes from Jesus himself, who knows you perfectly. And Jesus says, this is what you are. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, having given them or described their condition for them, Jesus gives this fervent call to them. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Notice, Jesus extends hope to this church. He doesn't say, hey, I'm done with you. Yeah, I could be done with you soon, but I'm not done yet. In verse 16, where he says, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Literally, that's what the text says. Well, our translation says, I will vomit you out. But literally, I am about to vomit you out. Listen, you have a little time. I'm extending grace to you. You better repent. You better respond urgently, zealously. Now, in verse 18, he offered them to buy gold, white garments, and ISAF. And in verse 19, he tells them, this is how you buy it. How do you buy it? Be zealous and repent. That's how you acquire it. That's how you get it. You can't offer anything for that. You can't buy it. You can't offer it. Oh, I have some resources. No. You need to be zealous. And you need to repent. You need to acknowledge your true condition. You need to realize this is who you are apart from Jesus. You need to confess that you can no longer rely on yourself. You can no longer rely on your own, on your own resources. You need to plead with Jesus to give you what you don't have and so desperately need. Because it is He who can give you these things, and you can't acquire these things on your own or any other way. And notice the way Jesus is pictured here. He is, I am willing to give it to you. If only you are zealous, and if only you come, and if only you repent. And if you repent, I will give you that. Now verse 20 paints another picture. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now you probably heard a sermon on this text. And very often, again, this text is pulled out of its context. And you heard something like this. Someone preaches you the message of salvation and say, you know, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking. The handle to that door is only on the inside. If you can open that door to him, he will come in and he will dine with you and you will be saved and you'll have fellowship. Now, maybe some things are true here and you can find support for somewhere else, for this somewhere else. But that's not the idea here for a couple of reasons. Notice, first of all, that Jesus is not talking to individuals. Jesus is talking to who? To the church. 
Jesus is standing at the door of the church. And it is true that church is made up of individuals. And yes, it is true that when you open your heart, although the Bible does not talk about it that way. Bible talks about God opening someone's heart to believe, right? Prayer is not to open your heart to Jesus. That's not the idea. You won't find that in the Bible. And although that happens, when God opens your heart and you believe and you get saved, Jesus does come in and you have fellowship with Him. But notice, He's talking to a church here. That's why we say that this is an apostate church. They're not a true church. Jesus is not in that church. And he's addressing this church. And he says, through this letter that I'm writing to you, I'm warning you and I'm telling you, behold, I stand at the door and knock. But second, we know the nature of repentance from elsewhere in Scripture. The book of Revelation, after all, is the very last book that is written in the New Testament. Up until this point, we know everything. Or at least everything that God wanted us to know about repentance. I mean, I don't know. Think about the guy who wrote 13 books of the Bible. If you told him that Jesus is standing at your door and he's knocking and he's asking you to come in. What would he think? Jesus is knocking? Sure, Jesus is knocking. Jesus knocked him off the horse and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I mean, that's not, that wasn't such a nice entry. Um, and we have this idea that this poor little Jesus, he just wants to be in your heart and you, you just don't want to let him in. That's not the idea. That's not the idea that you get anywhere in Revelation. That's not the point. He says, I am standing here and he's talking to the church. We know how Jesus comes in, right? Before you will ever respond, before you will ever open the door of your heart, it has to, God has to turn on the lights. God has to open your mind so that you believe. Because repentance is a gift of God. And yes, you are involved in that. Yes, you respond to what God does. Notice here, repent is a command. It's not just suggestion, like he's not just pleading with you. And it is true, it is biblical idea to say, you plead with sinners to come in. But here it's a command. It is a command from Jesus himself. Listen, repent, repent, I stand at the door. Recognize who you are, recognize your unworthiness and your bankruptcy. And plead with me for mercy. It's a command of a king. Now there's one more way that this picture is used in the Bible. If you zoom out from this immediate context here to the whole book of Revelation, what is the point of the book of Revelation? How would you summarize it? I think you can say it this way. Jesus is coming back, right? The very last thing that it says in the Bible. And he's going to reward the faithful and he's going to punish unfaithful. That's the book of Revelation summed up. Jesus wins. The book begins this way. And the book ends this way. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, He's coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Revelation 22 verse 12 says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what He has done. That's the message of the book of Revelation. Now just a parallel passage to Revelation 3.20. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 We're going to read verses 35 through 37. And notice the similarities between this verse and what we read in Revelation 3.20. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus says, Be dressed in readiness. Give you a minute. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that he may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. 
Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait upon them. Notice how many parallels there are here. You have a master coming. Same idea, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. He's at the door. He's knocking. The door is opened. He comes in. And then there is a feast. Now you read in light of that, you read Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Notice the idea, the master has come back. And you remember in other parables when Jesus says, when the master showed up and the servants were unready, remember what happened to them? Well, he still walked through the door. Right? They were punished. The idea of Jesus coming is twofold. Yes, on a personal level, individual level. Yes, when you do repent, God does come into your life. God does transform your heart. And He has fellowship with you all throughout until you get to glory. But the idea here is that, hey, Master is about to return. He's about to return and you're about to give answer to Him. The proof of that is, if you go back to Revelation verse 3, verse 21, chapter 3, 21. He says, He who overcomes, I will... Grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus is saying, listen, I am standing at the door. I am about to show up. And when I show up, those who are faithful, those who pass the test, they are going to sit down with me on my throne as I establish my reign here on earth. I am coming back. That's the warning of this passage. Now, as we conclude, I want to ask the final question. You know, they say that every sermon should answer three questions. The what, the so what, and now what? What about this third question, now what? Now, we read this and we understand how all of that applies to people in the first century, in their city, in their situation. But how would we take it for us? And no doubt you've probably taken some things and you've applied them to your heart or the Spirit of God has done that already. But I just want to conclude with looking at this by two levels. Two levels. There's an individual application, right? And then there's a church-wide application. On the individual level, you ought to make an assessment of your heart. You ought to make an assessment of your walk before the Lord. Can you possibly be just like these people in Laodicea who looked at themselves and said, Hey, I have need of nothing. Everything's great. I'm a pretty good person. I haven't killed anybody, right? And you trust and you rely on your own resources. What is the message to you from this text? Well, the same message Jesus gave to them. Be zealous and repent. Because you do not know when the door will open and He will come in. Be zealous and repent. Now, if you have repented, if you say, no, I don't trust in myself. I have nothing to offer to the Lord. All I can do is I can just plead for mercy. If that's you, praise God. Praise God. You're not trusting yourself. He's not describing you in this text. You grow in your dependence on the Lord day in and day out. But second, for a church, for us as a church, can we say that we are bringing refreshment and healing to people that come here? As we look forward to what the Lord will do here among us and through us, can we say that we are a place where people who are hurting, people who are struggling, they're able to come here and they may find refreshing company here. 
Just like a weary traveler would be refreshed by a cup of cold water, if he were to come in here, would that person be refreshed? What about people who are broken? People who are hurting by their sin? Would they come here to our place, to this church, and we have somebody minister the word of God to them, minister the truth to them, to help them deal with the issues that they're facing? That's what we ought to be. That's what we ought to do. We are to bring refreshment to people, and we are to bring healing to people. Now that involves not only the pastors, not only the leaders, but every single person, every single one of us, with the abilities that God has given to us, with the resources that God has given to us. We say, Lord, we are wretched. We are miserable. We are poor. We are blind. We are naked, apart from your grace. But by your Spirit, when you are among us, and when you're in us, you can enable us to minister to the hurting. You, are, you can enable us to bring refreshment to others. And notice, we don't have to be a wealthy church. We don't have to be a big church. Jesus addressed another church in the book of Revelation. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. He's talking to a church in Smyrna. One of the churches that did not receive a rebuke from Jesus. Notice what he says to them. Verse 9 says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. What is the next phrase? But I know you're rich. Notice these people, they literally didn't have anything. They were persecuted, run out of their town, run out of everything that they had. And Jesus looks at them and he says, but you are rich. To the rich, he says, you are poor. And to the poor, he says, you are rich. Why? Because they recognize their true condition. Now may this be a description of us as well. That though we may not have all the riches and all the things of this world, but what we do have, we give. And because we have the Spirit of God, we're able to impact one another as we come together. And we're able to impact everyone who comes through that door who hears the truth, who believes the gospel, so that they may grow, and that they may be refreshed. May God help us individually and as a church, so that on the last day when we stand before the Lord, we would receive His approval rather than condemnation. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, I thank You. I thank You that You are clear. I thank You that You have opened our eyes to behold how glorious You are and how wretched and miserable we are apart from You. I pray that we would always remember that to our last breath. We would say with Paul that, yes, I am the chief of sinners, but I have been shown great mercy. I pray for us as a body, Lord. May we be people who recognize that we don't have anything to give on our own, but because we have you, we have everything to give. May you add many to to our numbers. Those who would be healed, those who would be refreshed, those who would be empowered to go forth and proclaim Christ. Thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen.